And it's Thanksgiving. So we've got one more class, then we're off for a week at Thanksgiving. Then we've got a few classes in December before we're off for a few weeks. And if you do not have your bookmark schedule, grab one of those on your way out as well, or you can get those on our website. The reminder that I do like questions, so prepare yourselves to ask some good questions today. Um, I did do a little research for one of our questions last week I did not know about. And so we'll do that in just one minute after we open with prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we come to you today with grateful hearts, and we ask that you help to empty us of all the things that weigh us down, our worries and our concerns, our fears and our anxieties. Help us to put those down for the next hour so we can make space inside of us for your spirit to fill us up. May your spirit give us the courage, the wisdom, the tenacity to leave this place changed so that we can help extend your kingdom here on earth. Be with our friends today who need your healing touch. Those especially who are near death, may they feel your presence, be surrounded by your angels and lifted up to grow closer and closer to you. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends. One quick reminder that we are getting into the holiday time, and one of the things that we do here at St. Michael is we try to meet some of the needs of our neighbors outside our walls. And so there are two programs that are getting kicked off this, you know, in the last couple of weeks through the first week of December. One is I Believe in Angels, and the other is Heart of Giving. These are great ways for all of us to connect through ministries here at St. Michael to help our neighbors. I Believe in Angels is essentially like an angel tree gift giving. We can adopt children and with uh, our friends at Jubilee Park and we can send those gifts to them. It's this wonderfully dignified way of doing gift um, giving for communities. You know, typically you kind of like pull a name off a Christmas tree and then you go buy one of the three gifts that they list on the card. That's nice, but the way we do it here is we actually buy certain gifts in certain age ranges, those gifts are placed out in a room and parents in Jubilee Park and community are able to come and shop for their children for those gifts. So it's such a lovely way to help meet needs, but in a dignified way so that parents can really feel like they have provided this gift for their child rather than what sometimes is well-intentioned, um, but people come in from outside and hand a child a gift directly, which might make them feel good, but the parents may not feel so good about that, but it's necessary. And so this way we have kind of solved that problem. It's lovely. And so I believe that angels allows you to adopt children and Jubilee and then Heart of Giving is essentially cards that you buy and your money is donated in order to support multiple ministries at Christmas time here in Dallas. And so it's one of those things where you can fill out a card, send it to a friend or a family member and say, this card represents a donation that I gave in your honor to such and such ministry. It's lovely. And so those will be available for the next few weeks both before and after Thanksgiving here on Sunday mornings, or you can visit our website and you can make donations through that way as well. If you go to our homepage, there's always a little hub button for the season we are in, whether it's fall or soon to be Christmas, um, the Advent Christmas Epiphany season. And that gives you the links for all the stuff that we do, both special events, ways that you can give, classes you can take, podcasts you can listen to. It's all there on a single nice tight page. And so if you've never done that for our different seasons of the church, I commend that to you because it's a great way to stay connected and to participate in many of the different things that we do around here. Finally, someone asked me last week, how many wives Saul had? And you should know me by now. If I don't know the answer to a question, I'm not going to make one up. Um, I did not know that answer. Um, but one of our sharp online listeners, before this class was even over, had emailed me a screenshot of the Wikipedia page about how many wives Saul had. So I didn't even have to look it up. So Saul had one wife and one concubine. And that was what I could not remember. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I know he had more than one wife. But I don't think he had two wives. That was the problem. It was a concubine. And so Saul had one wife, Ahinoam, and then one concubine named Ritzba. And with both women, he had multiple children. And so he did have multiple children, probably about a dozen, but not quite what Solomon did. And so we'll get there. We'll get there. And of course, David, you know, spoiler alert, David had multiple wives and David 
acquired multiple wives wrongly, I will say. And so we'll cover all of that with Bathsheba soon. Um, we're getting there. So Saul, two women with whom he had children, wife and concubine. All right, so let's just step back a few verses to the end of chapter 19. I want to make sure we close that off well, because it's important for us going into chapters 20 through 23 to really anchor ourselves in the reality that Saul wants to kill David. So as we kick this off, we have four sections today. The first is going to be just tying up chapter 19. Then we're going to talk about how Jonathan protects David. Then we're going to talk about an interesting little scene about the holy bread. And then we're going to end with David on the run for real. So last week I talked about how David seems to be with Saul. Saul tries to kill him. David runs away. Then David comes back. And then Saul tries to kill him. And you kind of have this loop. David finally just gets out of town. And that's how we're going to end today's study. So to go back just to chapter 19, we're not going to read any of it. I simply want to put ourselves in the mindset that David is a problem for Saul. Saul is now homicidal. He wants to kill David and he's trying to bring people into his plan. He wants partners to help him kill David. He first starts by trying to bring in Jonathan. Well, Jonathan doesn't want to kill David because Jonathan's deeply friends with David. And so he rejects this idea that he's going to help Saul kill David. Saul gets mad. And so then Saul goes out and tries to bring in Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter. And we talked a little bit about that last week. That I mean, that's not really going to work and for good reasons. And so Saul has been foiled twice by trying to get his own children to help him kill David. I want to end with just the very last bit of chapter 19, starting at verse 20. Saul is just, you know, what, what do we say? Like in Alabama, we said having to come apart. He's just falling apart in front of us. And he's not sure what he needs to do in order to keep his throne secure. And so just to kind of put that into perspective, chapter 19, verse 20, Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of the prophets in a frenzy, with Saul standing in charge of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they fell prostrate in a prophetic frenzy. When Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they also fell into a frenzy. Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also fell into a frenzy. Then he himself went to Ramah. He came to the great well that is in Seku. He asked, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, they are at Noeth in Ramah. He went there toward Noeth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he was going. And as he was going, he fell into a prophetic frenzy. Okay, the very end of chapter 19, I simply wanted to show you Saul is trying again and again and again to get at David. And essentially the way the storyteller tells the story is God is getting in the way of Saul trying to kill David. And this is happening in this particular scene by them falling into a prophetic frenzy. Now, prophetic frenzy is not necessarily that they become prophets. That's not really what is being said here. Really what's being said here is that they are overcome by the Spirit of God. Our Pentecostal friends would probably say this points to how people speak in tongues. That's fine. It can also just mean that they were unable to get the job done. And so the storyteller is telling the story in a creative way to underscore that God is with David now. God is not with Saul anymore. And God's spirit, that frenzy, can come upon people even though God is favoring David. It's not that God's not touching other people. It's simply that God is with David and will help prevent others from hurting David, because that really is the person God wants to be king next. Any questions about how that is set up? Because we're going to get into a whole lot of Saul trying to kill David in these next few chapters. All right, let's get into chapter 20. Chapter 20 begins with a conversation between Jonathan and David. 
David obviously knows Saul's trying to kill him, and so he asks Jonathan to help defend him. So we are now transitioning away from what seems like independent individual stories, just connected in sequence, to David actually beginning to be strategic. David has, I guess you might say the way the storyteller is telling the story, figured it out. And so he's trying now to be proactive in protecting himself from Saul. So he goes to Jonathan, who really is kind of Saul's right hand, sort of, that seems to devolve over time. But Jonathan is still extremely close to Saul. Jonathan is who Saul wants to be king next. The way that any king would work, you pass it on father to son. And so Jonathan is still right there in the court. David goes to Jonathan, his best friend, and says, listen, your dad's trying to kill me. I need your help. I need you to tell me when your dad is going to try and do something against me. And so Jonathan, who loves David, we get this love language reiterated very strongly once again, agrees to help David by letting him know whenever Saul is going to try and do something. That pledge that Jonathan makes to David is something that will help sustain David now over these next few stories. The two of them hatch a little plan. So Jonathan and David are there hatching a plan that David's going to hide outside of the court in a field so Saul can't kill him. This is all very strange. I mean, I try to kind of picture the physicality of this story and it doesn't quite make much sense to me, but apparently if David goes and hides in a field, that's good enough. So David leaves, goes and hides in a field. Jonathan shows up for a special dinner David's supposed to be at this dinner too. And David's absence at the dinner is marked by Saul, but it takes a couple absences. I'm gonna read the passage first, and then we're gonna talk about what is actually happening here with this dinner so we get a bit of context. Look at chapter 20. We're gonna start at verse 24. Chapter 20, 24. So David hid himself out in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat at the feast to eat. The king sat upon his seat, as at other times, upon the seat by the wall. Jonathan stood, while Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, well, something has befallen him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to his son Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come to the feast, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our family is holding a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your sight, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I mean, that's kind of funny. Sorry, yeah. I'm glad you laughed. You should have. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he surely shall die. Then Jonathan answered his father Saul, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul threw his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that it was the decision of his father to put David to death. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David and because his father had disgraced him. I just want to note, you would think that people would be able to throw a spear better, but apparently in the Bible, I mean, how many times have people thrown spears at other people in, I think, the same room? Right? I mean, they're having dinner. It's not as if it's across a football field. It's not a javelin, you know? I mean, I imagine it's like right there. I think I could spear somebody. And I don't even, I haven't even trained for that. I mean, it just seems like this is really silly that they keep missing each other, but whatever. Okay, so let's talk about what this dinner is. As it says right up in verse 24, the new moon came and this king sat down for a feast. Judaism is a lunar calendar religion. We should realize this because Easter is based on Passover and Passover moves around every year based on the cycle of the moons. If you have ever wondered how we figure out the date of Easter, then I encourage you to look up the golden number in the prayer book. I think I said this a few years ago, but if you're bored or you're a nerd, if you grab a prayer book, 
there's a way to figure out the golden number, and that's how you can predict Easter pretty much any year you want. Our prayer books actually have the dates of Easter through 2050 in the back of the book. And so if you just want to check that out, or if you've got a child who is particularly curious or something like that, there's a very cool explanation of how we figure that date. Or we can just ask someone who's Jewish when Passover is, that works too. So we've got Easter based on a lunar calendar because Judaism is lunar. And so what, ha what is happening here probably is that there is some kind of specific feast that happens with a new moon that is meant to celebrate God in some way. This is kind of like a holiday meal. Why it happens over multiple days is because in the ancient world, people would travel to share a meal together and they can't get from one place to another quickly. And so to gather together like a family for a feast like this on the new moon, you would plan to be together for a few days. And so just like if you've ever gone to kind of old world style wedding ceremonies, you see this in places like India and in the Middle East. Wedding ceremonies last for days and days. It's not because people can't feed themselves after the first day. It's because they've traveled a long way. And so the host of the event would plan to feed people over many days before they would leave to go home again. That's really what's happening here. And so it's one of those first day, David's not there, Saul kind of thinks, what? He must be unclean. Surely he is not clean. What does that mean? Well, there are many ritualistic ways to be unclean. Some of the most common ways would be if you've touched blood, if you've touched a dead body, if you have had sex, some of those very common things that sort of might just happen in life might make you unclean for a certain period of time. What seems to be happening in this story is Saul kind of ignores day one because he figured David may just be unclean and he can't sit at the feast table. But come day two, when David is not there, he is noticed. And that's when Saul goes to Jonathan and says, what happened? Jonathan tells Saul the story he and David had planned to tell, which was essentially David was called back home. David is from Bethlehem. And so David went back to his family. Remember, David's the youngest son. And so it's plausible that the head of the house would have called David back in order to share some kind of important moment with the family. But for whatever reason, Saul does not buy this story. And so Saul gets super mad at Jonathan. And this is the moment when it kind of clicks for Saul, at least the way the story is told, that Jonathan is preferencing David. And Saul has no idea why this is happening. It seems completely irrational that Jonathan, who would be king, would preference the one person who could take the kingship away from him. Saul sees this as really a power issue. Saul has the power, but a king's really only as good as his heir. Jonathan is his heir, and Jonathan is preferencing this random guy who already has a lot of adoration all around him. People are loving David. David's cute. David's a good military person. He's a great musician, right? So, I mean, the guy who wins the battle also plays the guitar and sings and is cute. We all know he's super popular. And so David's got all this attention. And Saul's like, Jonathan, what the heck? Don't you understand that he is undermining your future authority? But what he doesn't realize is that Jonathan's love for David, and we can interpret perhaps Jonathan's perception that God is doing something new for David is what trumps whatever his father desires. We know that Jonathan has a love for David, yes. It's also clear in the way the story is told that David is perceiving, I'm sorry, that Jonathan is perceiving God is doing something new through David. And although we never get a very explicit moment, it is implied strongly that Jonathan's faithfulness is one of the reasons why he preferences David over his father. He actually says that this, I want, he, Jonathan says to David, God's spirit is with you and I support you because God is with you as he used to be with my father. And so there is this understanding that Jonathan has that Saul 
had that spirit at some point no longer. And Jonathan sees it in David. And so Jonathan's loyalty is absolutely rooted and anchored in David himself. There are interesting dynamics in the argument that Jonathan and Saul have right here. It really amounts to the way in which Saul understands power and authority. For us, it's important to note that Saul's misunderstanding of power and authority is a modern problem too. I mean, we just had election day yesterday. It is so easy for us, particularly in a system like America, to place power and authority and hopefulness in people. It does not mean, what I do not want you to hear me say is that elections are unimportant. I think elections are wonderfully important, but we have to always check ourselves to not go too far in our faithfulness, not go too far in our hopefulness and yoking the future on any human. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to be a whole lot more cosmic in the way that we see the world. Don't ever, we kind of, kind of talked about this at one point, don't ever think that an election is the most important thing ever. It's important, you should vote. I hope you all voted, but Hopefulness about our future should never rest in humans. Hopefulness about our future should always rest and be anchored in our connection to God and the love we share through God with one another. That is what is most important. And what Jonathan represents here is that kind of understanding. Jonathan has every worldly reason to reject David. David is the number one threat to his own power and authority. And yet Jonathan sees that God is doing something new in David. And it's Jonathan's humility and faithfulness that allows him to put him, his own interests aside and follow what God is trying to do in the world. That is profound. And it is something our world struggles with mightily. We see it all the time. And what I want you to be, to kind of put inside of you is the sense that it is easy for all of us, every one of us, to feel the fear that people around us try to fan inside of us. And that fear can drive us to thinking that a certain person is our only hope. That is fundamentally unfaithful. We are challenged to be more like what Jonathan does in these scenes where we can see God working, sometimes in unexpected ways, sometimes in ways that don't benefit us. Yeah, oftentimes in ways that don't benefit us. And it's still God at work. And so our choice then becomes, do we choose something that benefits us? Or do we choose something that might be part of God's intention for the world? Jonathan's doing the right thing here. Oh, hello. All of a sudden, God must like what I just said. There you go. So this story, although important from a study perspective, has some very, very real impacts on how we choose to live today. This is politics writ large. Jonathan is in the heat of it. And he is somehow keeping his eye on the prize of God in the world. That's a great learning for us. All right, thoughts or questions about that section? Yes, the lady in the hat. <laughs> One thing that just clicked for me is a couple of weeks ago when we started speaking about I love that observation. So, especially for the recording and for those of you online, the observation is that something just clicked that Saul seemed clueless in some of our previous stories. And today it seems 
I'll paraphrase, and you tell me if this sounds right, that Saul's cluelessness is essentially part, is what takes him down the wrong path. What is interesting about Saul? I mean, we can easily throw Saul off as a crazy person, an egomaniac, a, you know, bloodthirsty, whatever. Don't be so quick because in this story right now, Saul is probably the most human of all the characters. Saul is likely who we should wrestle with most. Because although we can read this story and say, David is so faithful doing the right thing, just like us. Like that gives us a lot of credit and we should probably not be so quick. Jonathan, most faithful, Jonathan, most generous and humble in following after God's plan. That is definitely not like most of us. Saul, who has power and security and authority is seeing someone threaten that even though God's at work in whatever is happening to threaten his power and security, and he starts to defend himself, that, that's where most of us live. And so we may me feel uncomfortable about that. I hope you do. I do. I am constantly, like most of the rest of us, doing things in my own self-interest despite myself. We are made that way. That is part of our entire story. I, you've probably heard me say this before. One of my, ooh, I hate the phrase that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I've preached this at funerals. It is the worst theology. Do not tell someone that because that just betrays that we don't really understand the whole idea of Jesus. God, we absolutely get more than we can handle. Absolutely, we get more than we can handle. We are so imperfect. And if you want to go down the whole like original sin path, we can do that, but I'm not quite right there. But I am definitely in the whole imperfection bit. We are so fundamentally imperfect that we need the gift of Christ in us to help us be better than we are when left to our own devices. That's the whole story. So we can theologize and Christologize Jesus all we want, which is fine. But fundamentally, Jesus represents the hope over who we are naturally. That's it. And so in this moment, we are seeing Saul's humanity flare the same way it does in all of us. And it's great when we are sorry, when we make a bad choice, but how much better is it for us to work and struggle and try to maybe not make those bad choices quite so often? That's the learning that we get with Saul. Saul is totally normal. This story is a little sensational. We're going to get to a bit of terrible things and we've probably none of us killed a priest, I hope, right? Okay, so we're going to get there in just a minute. But Saul is problematic. And I think, let me turn that one more time. Saul had the anointing of God at one point. One of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is the idea of how much effort are we to put into this discipleship business? Because is it really about getting to heaven? You know, if we make Christianity a get out of hell free card, we are missing the point. That classic question, if you've been baptized, but then you become a real jerk and do terrible things and you reject verbally and in your heart, all of that stuff, are you still going to heaven just because you were baptized? I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know that answer because I'm a good Episcopalian and I can always tell you I'm not so sure. What I can tell you is that that is not the point. Baptism is not the box to check so you don't go to hell. That's not what we're doing here. That's just a starting place. It is a ritual moment when we say a wonderful prayer together and we look at each other and we say, we're going to take care of this person. We, the community, we are responsible for one another. That's what happens in baptism. It's not magic, but instead so many people think, well, I did that, check, and I'm good. That is the problem of Saul. Saul really is the problem that most people have today with religion and discipleship in general, they kind of check the box and God is present in that moment. Yes, but you got to choose God every day. 
and make that choice again every day. And that's where Saul falls short. Saul had God in him. He was anointed. And yet Saul stopped choosing God every day. Saul instead started choosing himself. That's our problem, people. That is the human struggle. It is so easy to choose ourselves. The world tells us all the time to choose ourselves. And yet that's not what we hear in scripture. We're called to choose each other, not ourselves. And we can unpack that a lot if you'd like to, but that in its most fundamental sense is what we're able to glean from this story for our own lives each day. All right, follow up questions or thoughts? Having skin in the game. That's right. Well, it, it's having skin in the game, and it's also not being tied to the outcome. This is, it kind of gets back to, with a little trepidation, I'm going to mention prayer, because whenever we get into prayer here, we skew way off the rails. Um, but this is for those of you who have not been with us over the years, um, we've had many meaningful discussions about what prayer is, what it does, and all the other stuff. I will note, we are called to pray. We are called to ask for what we want and what we think we need. But prayer needs to be disconnected from the outcome or from the answer. Because prayer is not in order to convince God to do stuff. Prayer is for us to deepen our relationship with and our dependency on God. That's the best form of prayer. But for so many of us, we were essentially taught to say a prayer to get a reaction or to say a prayer to get a response. And every person in this room knows it doesn't work that way. Now we can put lipstick on that pig, but if we start with the idea that praying right gets us the answer we want, we will almost always be disappointed. I mean, a, a broken clock's right twice a day. Okay, so we can say a prayer for a thing we want and sometimes we get it and then we think, oh, we did the prayer right. No, you just happened to have gotten the answer you wanted. That's not because you prayed right. Prayer is not about right or wrong. Prayer is about submitting ourselves humbly back to God. It's about making sure we are not being egomaniacs. Prayer is good for us to make sure that our focus is always more on God than on ourselves. And essentially that's the skin in the game. Doing something without being invested in the outcome is really hard. It is, it is counterintuitive to what we wish it were, but what we wish it were does not make it so. And that's really hard for us. And in a crisis moment, that's not the conversation you have. I think I've said this to you in here before. If I'm sitting with a person, with a family member in the hospital while their loved one is dying and they say, well, it's okay. God's not going to give me more than you can handle. I'm not going to say that's bad theology. That's not the time. That's not what we do. We talk about this kind of thing here when maybe we've got a moment today, right now, where we can actually entertain complexity of a shift in the way that our faith may work because maybe we are not in a crisis right now. And if we do that a bit and we spend that time and we pray about it and we focus and we meditate a bit now, next time we get into a crisis, because it'll happen, next time we're in one, maybe we'll be just a little bit stronger in rooting ourselves in the identity we're called to have in scripture rather than the identity the world has kind of created that sounds good. All right, let's press on. Stop me if you've got more questions. All right, section three, we're gonna talk about David on the run. This is, oh, I messed up. Section three, section four is David on the run. What did I say? Oh, it's the holy bread. Okay, section three is the holy bread. There is a moment here when David is fleeing from Saul with his men. We often think, you know, David flees from the king. We kind of think like David's just off on his own. That's really not how anyone traveled at that point. You always traveled in a group. David has his people. It's mostly military people because 
he's a good military commander. And so these are people loyal to David, not loyal to Saul. They flee with David to essentially try to protect him from Saul. So David is fleeing, but it happens quickly. And the implication of the story is they didn't have time to prepare for this. So they don't have stuff with them, like food. And so they've got to kind of make it work as they go. So there's a story here where David lands in the city of Nob and he meets priests of Nob and he asks for special bread. And that special bread is called the bread of the presence. Now I'm gonna to get to the story out of 1 Samuel in a moment, but I want us to talk about the idea of bread of the presence and like capital P, not presence like wrapped under a tree, but presence like we are present together. Bread of the presence is something that goes way back in Judaism. And I want to read a couple passages that you don't have to turn to about what this bread actually is. Essentially, this bread refers to loaves that are baked weekly by priests in a temple, tabernacle, whatever, placed on a golden table where they would lie present as, in a sense, an offering or a gift to God. In Exodus chapter 25, this is what it says. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make it around the rim with the breadth and width and molding of gold and blah, blah, blah. Skip down and it says, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me always. God is, in, is instructing the Israelites about how to worship rightly as Jewish people. And what God is saying is you're going to create a table covered in gold where you will put the bread for me. If we jump to Leviticus chapter 24, it actually describes that you should take choice flour and bake 12 loaves of it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall place them in two rows, six in a row, on the table of pure gold. You shall put pure frankincense with each row to be a token offering for the bread as an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall set them in order before the Lord regularly as a commitment of the people of Israel, as a covenant with me forever. They shall be for Aaron and his descendants who shall eat them in the holy place, for they are most holy portions for him from the offerings by fire to the Lord. So essentially what is happening in Exodus is you've got to bake some bread for God. Then as, you dis as the priesthood evolves, in Leviticus we hear that God is instructing the priests to have this special bread for themselves. So essentially the people offer the bread to God. God then gives the bread to the priests to help sustain them in the temple. Does that all make sense? This is way back. This is Mount Sinai stuff with Moses. All right, this Exodus Leviticus stuff. Now, jump back into 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 2. Chapter 21, verse 2. As I said, David is on the run with his people. He comes to the city of Nob, and there he meets a priest named Ahimelech. And here we go, chapter 21, verse two. David said to the priest Ahimelech, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, no one must know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what have you at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no ordinary bread at hand, only holy bread, provided that the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, indeed, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is a common journey. How much more today would their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there except for the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken. All right, we'll pause there. I know this is kind of weird, but hang in with me because I've got a point. Okay, so we started with Exodus and Leviticus. Now we're here in 1 Samuel. David's on the run. He goes to Nob. Now, what is Nob? Nob is apparently a city that was likely the place 
where the tabernacle was moved from Shiloh when Shiloh was destroyed. Now, if you, we know weeks and weeks ago, we talked about Shiloh. Shiloh was where stuff happened with Saul and Samuel. Shiloh is somehow not there anymore, and Nob has now become the place of the tabernacle. So this is really the holy place for the Jews. Remember that they don't have a unified capital yet. They do not have... Oh my. They do not have a temple. That woke everybody up, didn't it? Instead, they've got a tabernacle, a place where the ark rests. And so the ark still exists. You still got the tablets. You still got the sacred stuff. But there is no big capital T temple yet. Solomon built it. We're not there yet. It was in Shiloh. It has now been moved to Nob. And the priests serve the tabernacle. Judaism is important, but we've not yet gotten to the point where Judaism is as important as it will be after the exile. It is building in its importance. And so Nob is important, but it's not quite the same way that the temple in Jerusalem is important later. But still, the priests are there. They are baking the bread and offering it to God. But there is this indication here that the priests would eat that bread each day. So if you can imagine, there's kind of a little cycle here where the bread would be baked and placed, and then the priest would eat the bread. It is unclear whether that's daily or weekly. It potentially could be every Sabbath. It's not quite certain. It could be either way. Regardless, David shows up with his men who support him. The priest is not supposed to give this bread away. That's the whole point. The priest is meant to protect this bread. It is for God, and God has only granted the priests to be able to eat this bread. No one else. And yet David is in need, and his men are in need. And this priest, after saying, is everyone clean, which essentially means they haven't had sex, they haven't dealt with a dead body, that sort of stuff. David says, yes, we're all clean. Then the priest gives David the bread. Now, it may not be a big deal to us, but this was a very interesting note in sort of the history of the Old Testament, this is important. And it was also important to Jesus. Listen to this passage from Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as he and his disciples made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not the humankind for Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what happens in this moment with David has a big theological ripple. Jesus calls this idea with his disciples when challenged about doing stuff on the Sabbath because the message of Christ was essentially, you've put too many rules around this. God is for us. We have not been made to just follow all of these rules. Now, rules are fine. It's not that rules are unhelpful, but when there is need, you can absolutely do things like heal on the Sabbath or feed on the Sabbath, you name it. Of all other things being equal, it's fine. It's kind of like what I say to my children. When we go to church on Sunday, we dress nicely. Is that because God wants us to wear nice clothes? Absolutely not. And anytime it ever comes up, I say, remember, if you ever want to go to church, you ever need to be in God's presence at any time ever in your life, you wear whatever you have on and you go however you are. It never matters. But if it's just a normal Sunday and there is no crisis and you have the time to put on some nice clothes, put on some nice clothes because it just gets your mind right for what it is you're about to do. We can get too strict about wearing a particular thing in church or if we can't wear that particular thing or we don't look good enough. We don't come that day. I can't tell you how many times people tell me, well, I just didn't, I wasn't feeling good enough. And I'm thinking, wait, when you're not feeling good enough, that's exactly when you come to church. 
It's when you're feeling great, everything's going well, and life's like full of roses. That may be the time when you don't go to church, I guess, although you should always go to church. But <laughs> it's when life's a mess, and you've only got one shoe, and your earring fell off, and whatever. I mean, there was this wonderful man who came, it was a couple years ago, and he came, and when I tell you, his face looked a mess. I actually went up to him and said, are you okay? He had had a bad chemical peel. I mean, when I tell you he looked like a pepperoni pizza, um, I mean, it was, it, was, it was almost like disconcerting to talk to him. He had put on a suit and he came to church because you go to church. And how many of us, if that sort of thing happened, would say, I am definitely not going to church today. That's not the right way to be. You go when life is messy. And Jesus is saying through this particular story in 1 Samuel that we should not let our good rules that help us much of the time keep us from God. Then the rules are not helpful. And so that's something for us to keep in mind because we all like rules and we like consistently consistency and predictability. But when they get in the way of what is actually most important, that's a problem. One quick note, after this whole David eats the bread of the presence, David also acquires Goliath's sword that was, for some reason, with the priests at Nob, and now he is armed as he continues to escape Saul. All right, that's it for that little section. Any questions? Yes, sir. Just a shameless plug for engagement from what you just said. I would say if you have the time to be ready and feel good and have a great day, that's it. Also, be in church, be there to welcome those that are disheveled and having a horrible bad day. Yeah, it's a really good note. You know, if you were to, sometimes people ask me things like, what's your vision for St. Michael? You know, what's your that kind of stuff, which is such an open ended question. But I will say, there are a few ways that I can articulate my hope for our church in the future. And one of those ways is, that we get to a point where most people show up on Sunday, not for themselves, but for the other people who are showing up on Sunday. Because there are people who are looking for God. And if most of us can find fulfilling experiences between the Sundays, that helps us show up on Sunday to be available for the people who are seeking God's presence. That's when visitors, that's when people who are disconnected, that's when people who are isolated and sad and lonely and messy and all of the other things that happen in life, that's the moment that people typically come seeking God. Well, when we all show up, most of us, getting something for ourselves, it's really hard to be available for the people who are really trying to find God because they will find God through us. And if we can make that pivot, where most of us start showing up most Sundays with the availability to help other people see God through us, that's when we change who we are and what we're all about. So yes, if you're having a good day and everything's feeling good, you may not be a greeter. You may not be on the schedule. You can absolutely stand in the hallways and look out for people, not the people you know, I mean, that's nice, and you can catch up with people you know, that's fine. But every Sunday, there are people walking around this building by themselves, they do not know anybody, and they are hoping to feel something divine. When you see people like that, know that God puts you there. And when you don't say something to them, when you don't show that divine presence to those individuals who are there by themselves, that then is the thing we confess later when we say things left undone. And so take that as a challenge to actually go say hi to the person who is sitting by themselves. Because I'll tell you, if you have the gall to come to a church our size by yourself, the worst thing that can happen is for everyone to ignore you. Don't do that. All right. Any thoughts or questions about this section? Is Nob still around? Oh, is Nob still around? I have no idea. We don't really know where Nob is. Um, there is 
there's a little bit of a suspicion that Nob was northeast of Jerusalem, and people think that they found archaeological evidence of it kind of being on the slope in the valley of one of the hills northeast of Jerusalem. It does not exist as a functioning city today, but it kind of makes sense based on some other stories from scripture. Um, we're going to get more more knob story coming up. Any other questions? Yes. Are you going to talk about the set that priest came That's what's next. So, section four. We're going to talk about David on the run. So, like I said, David's running from Saul. He stops a knob. He gets the bread. Well, Saul finds out. This next section, to me, is unredeemable. And so... There you go. We're just going to talk about it. And I've got not much to say to you, except it's terrible. So David's on the run. Saul wants to kill him. David gets the help from the priest at Nob. When Saul learns that David has gotten assistance from Ahimelech, who is the priest at Nob, he orders his servants to kill the priests. His servants do not. But Saul has a right-hand man, his chief herdsman. His name is Dog, and he is described as Dog the Edomite. What is an Edomite? Anyone remember? Edom and the Edomites descend from Esau. So this is one of those groups of people that are essentially not the Israelites that God chose. They kinda are, because we get the first promise to Abraham for all of Israel. And Abraham has two sons. And one of his sons goes all the way down to Jacob. And Jacob then inherits that promise. Well, Jacob's twin brother Esau is also Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson. But Esau kind of does wrong stuff. And there are multiple moments we can point to. One of the big moments is that Esau marries women who are not part of the clan. Remember, Jacob is sent back sent back to the homeland to find a wife. That's when he marries Leah, Rachel, and all of that sort of stuff. And then Jacob comes back to see Esau. Esau has stayed, stayed where he was born his entire life, but he married local women. The way the story is told, that's not okay. And so Esau's descendants are essentially kind of cursed in a sense. The way the story is told, you've got Esau's line that stays over here. Jacob's line goes to Egypt and then comes out of Egypt. And then the group that conquers the promised land does so righteously over and against who are essentially Esau's descendants. And they are multiple branches, but the Edomites are one of them. So it is interesting that Saul, the first king of Israel, has a right-hand man who is an Edomite. So what is not clear in the story, but what a sharp eye will note, is that somehow Saul has figured out that the Israelites, the actual descendants of Jacob, are not following his lead anymore. And we see that with the servants who refuse to kill the priests. But the Edomite, the Edomite will kill a priest. And that is not an accident that the story is told this way. Let's look at the actual passage. Oh my goodness. Hold on. For whatever reason, I did not copy the passage into this page, but it's terrible and horrible and we need to read it. Okay. Look at verse... Let's look at verse 11. Chapter 22, verse 11. So remember that Saul finds out that David has gone and gotten help, including a sword... And Saul says, or look at verse 11. The king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitib. A, sorry, Ahuti, whatever, a word. And for all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of a word. He answered, here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, by giving him bread and a sword, and by inquiring of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as he is doing today? Then Ahimelech answered the king, who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Did you catch that? The priest is saying to the king, David's a good guy. He is the king's son-in-law. 
and is quick to do your biddings and is honored in your house. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? By no means. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any member of my father's house, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. What Ahimelech is saying here is David's a good guy and he's done nothing wrong. And if he has done something wrong, I certainly didn't know about it. So you can't blame me for what I didn't know. Let's keep going. Verse 16. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. The king said to the guard who stood around him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. They knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not raise their hand to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Dog, you, Dog, turn and attack the priests. Dog the Edomite turned and attacked the priests. On that day, he killed 85 who wore the linen ephod. Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, men and women, children and infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when, the, when Dog the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I am responsible for the lives of all your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid for the one who seeks my life seeks your life. You will be safe with me. This is just a terrible story. Saul has just lost his mind. And so here he is doing a thing that even his own people, his own servants know is wrong. And so the only people he can get to do his will, to actually do this evil thing, are the ones who really are not the Israelites. They are the Edomites. I don't want you to miss that note. This is, we are nearing the end of Saul's reign. David has come up. We know David is important. We know David is essentially forming his own identity. We will be done with Saul very soon. And Saul's demise is very, very complete. And although Saul has done some bad things, we are now getting to the point where Saul's bad things are tragic, including the destruction of Nob. I mean, I hope you caught killing all the priests every person, every animal just laid waste to the entire city. This is the city of the tabernacle. Saul has completely broken away from God, such that only the people who did not inherit God's promise are the ones who will now work for him. It's a bad, bad news. Saul, David is unhappy. David is on the run. David has found himself in a cave in order to keep himself safe. But David is creating alliances. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that David essentially forms alliances outside of the main Israelite um, cabinet or royal structure that will ultimately pay off for him in the future. David's links to the other groups outside of Israel is going to be part of what helps him unify Israel once he is king. And those kinds of relationships are anchored in moments like this, when David essentially has to get out, out into the areas where the Israelites are not really in control and begin to make deals with the leaders of these other tribal groups. And that political uh, connectedness is going to pay off very well as this story continues over the next few weeks. Any last questions or comments? Yes. <coughs> Is there any way that the guys in Babylon who were writing this chose this story to blame the Edomites and make the Israelites what to Oh, yes. So the question is, um, the people who wrote the story, did they, were they intentional about blaming yes. the Edomites in the story? 100%. There is no reason why Dog was referred to. When is Dog referred to as Dog the Edomite? The moment he kills the priests. He's referred to as Dog multiple times in the story. Until the moment when it says he kills the priests, then he is Dog the Edomite. That's not an accident. And we could easily skip over that and not understand the gravity of the note. 
But everyone who was reading this story after the exile knows exactly what that means. It's like when Jesus talks about the Samaritans. We hear Samaritan and we think about the nice story and isn't that person that? No, no, no. When Jesus told that story, it was like stabbing the Jews in the eye by referencing the Samaritans. And so then you get the aggression and the weight of that story. The same way that saying Edomite here, everyone would have perked up and said, oh my God, so the Israelites didn't do it, but the Edomites did it? Because it's horrible. Anyone reading the story is gonna say, you killed all these priests? and you killed their entire families, that's unredeemable. But it sure helps that the Israelites said no. The Edomites, they're the ones that did it. That's not an accident. Scapegoating 101. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I'll see you next week. Bye.